I don't know about you, um, but I must admit, I've always found the um, I am statements of Jesus a bit tricky. I have a degree in literature, I'm supposed to like metaphors, but even so, they, they leave me a bit baffled. I am the bread of life. I am the light of the world. I am the gate. I mean, they're, they're all things, Jesus. They're objects. You can't, you can't be a gate. You can't be bread. And even resurrection. If not a thing, it's an event, surely, something that happens. And life, well, not, not tangible per se, still in some sense a thing. It would be blue, wouldn't it, in our articulate or pictionary. But here we have Jesus again saying, I am. I am the resurrection and the life. And I have to say, I've actually um, found studying the context of, uh, of that claim in John 11, quite refreshing. Because um, I think Martha is in the same boat as us, or, or me at least. Because Jesus says to her, I am the resurrection and the life. But I think, um, judging from her responses as she talks to Jesus in verses 21 and 27, and her comment in verse 39 at her brother's tomb, I think she really doesn't get it. And I find that quite refreshing as we come to this passage this evening. But let's pray and ask God to help us. Father, thank you for your word in John 11. We thank you for what you have to say to us this evening of Jesus. Open our hearts that we might listen and hear your voice. Amen. Um, and it's on Martha's story, and particularly her encounter with Jesus in verses 21 to 27, uh, that we'll particularly focus this evening. And, and as we study, I hope we'll see two things. Uh, firstly, Jesus calls her to follow a person not just a faith. And secondly, Jesus calls her to realise that new life has already begun. Jesus calls her to follow a person, not just a faith. And Jesus calls her to realise that new life has already begun. So firstly, Jesus calls Martha to follow a person, not just a faith. Um, we actually start the chapter uh, with our attention focused on uh, the disciples uh, the disciples who just don't seem to get it. And tragic news reaches them in verse 3 uh, from Jesus' good friends, Martha and Mary, uh, that their brother, the one Jesus loves, is ill. But instead of doing the compassionate thing and setting out straight away in the hope that he might make it in time or at least be there as soon as possible after the death, Jesus makes the controversial decision to delay in verse 6, when he heard that Lazarus was ill, he stayed where he was two more days. And he explains in verse 4, this illness will not end in death. No, it is for God's glory, so that God's Son may be glorified through it. And only after two more days have gone by does he announce that they're going back to Judea. In verses 14 and 15, his disciples more bewildered than ever. And then at, at verse 17, um, we move from the perspective of the disciples, who just don't get it, to Martha and Mary, who cannot fathom it. 
as Jesus reaches the outskirts of Bethany, in verses 17, 18 and 19, he finds a scene of great mourning. Lazarus has been dead for four days now, at the end of verse 17. Hope has been extinguished, but it's too soon for thanksgiving, eulogies, elegies. At this stage, it's just tears, just grief. On hearing of Jesus' arrival, Martha, in verse 20, rushes out to him. Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. And don't our hearts go out to her with those words? Not, not words of rebuke, I don't think, but just simple incomprehension. You could have been here, Jesus. You could have done something. I just can't understand why you didn't. Maybe you've said those words to God yourself in grief. Or be comforted by Jesus' response in this passage, if you have. And Martha goes on, I know that even now, God will give you whatever you ask. You wonder whether she even knows what she's saying. Stumbling for, for the right words, for words of faith and trust in her grief. And Jesus responds, verse 23, your brother will rise again. And I wonder whether Jesus isn't the first person who said this to her over the last few days. You know where he's gone, Martha. You'll see him again. He's safe with God now. Maybe you've said similar yourself. Or someone said them to you when you've been grieving. I know, Martha responds. I, I know, verse 24. I know he will rise again in the resurrection at the last day. I know where he is. I, I know God's promises. I know I will see him again. I know he's safe with God now. And Jesus walks away. Truth stated. Encouragement given. His job as a mourner done. But no. Jesus stays. And he says what to the watching Jews could have only seemed utterly ludicrous. He says, verse 25, I am the resurrection and the life. I am the resurrection and the life. You see, Martha, resurrection, it's not just a thing, but like a gift card you trade in when you die and you get the free prize of new life. Or the loyalty card that you've been earning all the points on. And now finally, you get the, the reward. Resurrection is not just a thing. It's a person. And life too. Life is not just a thing. It's not just a present that your otherwise absent father turns up to give you on Christmas Day before disappearing for another year. Life is not just a thing, it's a person. What does that mean? You can imagine Martha reeling in confusion as Jesus said this to her. Well, I think, I think it's a gentle but a fundamental challenge to Martha 
to change the way she thinks about her faith and about this man stood before her, Jesus. I think it's a gentle but fundamental challenge to reorient her faith and her life and put Jesus at the centre. To take him from his role as sort of the supporter on the sidelines, cheering us on, or the, or the cosmic Father Christmas dishing out good things, or the boss or teacher waiting and watching to see if we've done a good enough job, and to put him instead at the centre. I am the resurrection and the life. And I wonder whether there's a gentle challenge for us there as well. I wonder whether we need to change how we view our faith, how we think and talk about what it means to be a Christian, how we view Jesus. I can't help but think that perhaps in our, in our keenness to avoid the sort of Jesus is my boyfriend emotion-led church or, or our fear of getting so carried away with the gifts of the Spirit that we forget the gospel, I wonder whether we go so far the other way and our faith becomes quite impersonal. I wonder whether we forget that our faith isn't about a creed, a set of doctrine, a theology, a set of beliefs. Nor is it fundamentally about a community, a group of people, a missional focus, a building, habits of personal discipline. Fundamentally, it's about a person. Paul wrote that he longed to know Christ. In Philippians 3, verse 10. And I ask myself, do I, do I long to know Christ? Or am I happy simply knowing my Bible? The Pharisees knew their Bibles. Am I happy simply maintaining my spiritual disciplines? Well, the Israelites were sent into exile, but they were all over their spiritual disciplines. Am I happy simply being part of a loving church community? But even sinners love those who love that, said Jesus. If Christianity is about knowing Christ, if it's Christ who is at the centre, I wonder whether I, I wonder whether we, just need to reorient the way we think about our faith. I wonder whether I need to... Um, push aside my awkward English reserve and just talk about Jesus a bit more. I wonder whether the way I think and the way I speak needs to be less about knowing stuff and more about knowing him. Less about what I have done, my service, my sermons, my essays, my quiet times, and more about what he has done. Less about enjoying his blessings and more just about enjoying knowing him. And maybe my prayers need to be less about what I've done and haven't done. And more about him and what he is doing. We have so much to learn from our brothers and sisters around the world and in different denominations and church traditions. If Christianity is about knowing Christ, if it's Christ who is at the centre, I wonder whether we need just to reorient ourselves a little bit in the way we think and talk about our faith, and the way we think and talk about our Saviour.
So Jesus calls Martha to trust him, to follow a person, not just a faith. But that isn't all he teaches here. Let's move on to our second point now. Martha's called to realise that new life has already begun. New life has already begun. Jesus goes on in verse 25. The one who believes in me will live, even though they die. And whoever lives by believing in me will never die. Wow. So much that could be said about those, those few words there. It's very briefly, the first part, the one who believes in me will live even though they die. Death is not the end of life. We are believers in Christ. The heart monitor being switched off is not the final scene. Our lives do not end on that hospital bed when we die. The grave does not get to claim the victory if we believe in him. Rather, the second part, whoever lives by believing in me will never die. For not only does death not win, but it has been utterly defeated. The battle was not a closely run thing. Death has been trounced by Christ. As one commentator on on this passage put it, death is patently the loser in John chapter 11. And of course, um, unless Jesus returns first, we as Christians will still die. These worn out bodies need to go into the ground so that they can be transformed into their glorious future condition. Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 15. And that will be a great sadness especially for our loved ones. Just look at the tears. Jesus sheds himself in verse 35 at Lazarus' grave. But there's also a sense in which Jesus says it himself. Christians will never truly die. We will never know death as we would have known it if we hadn't trusted Christ. More than that, Death will not be the great turning point in our lives. It will be significant. I'm carried away with my hand gestures. <laughs> Glad we recorded the sermon for the four o'clock. <laughs> There we go. Um, Of course, death will be significant. We will leave behind our sin uh, and we'll leave behind, uh, sorry, our bodies will be frail and broken no more. But the real turning point, if we are believers, the real moment when everything changes, the great crossover point from death to life has already happened. It happened when we first believed when we were spiritually reborn, as Jesus told Nicodemus in chapter 3, when we drunk the living water, as he said to the Samaritan woman in chapter 4, when we first ate the living bread that he offers in chapter 6. Spiritually, our eternal life has already begun. We have been reborn. 
In 2 Corinthians 5 verse 17, Paul writes that we have already been made new creations. In Ephesians 2, he writes that we have already been brought to life from our spiritually dead state. We so often put passages like those into the future tense. And yes, of course, we're not in our resurrected bodies. We haven't fully experienced the resurrection. Nevertheless, we have already spiritually been brought to life. Our new life with Christ has already begun. And doesn't this change how we live and how we think about life? Lazarus was going to die again. And extraordinary as this miracle was, a man whose corpse had already started to smell, verse 39, four days later, walking alive out of the tomb, verse 44. Extraordinary as this miracle was, Lazarus wasn't raised in his eternal resurrection body, as Jesus would be a little later. No. This was just temporary. Lazarus was going to die again. It was just a tiny foretaste, a little glimpse of what we have to look forward to. And doesn't this change how we live and how we think about life? Because, you see, the gap, the difference between what we are now and what we know we will be when we are raised, free from sin, is so big, that gap feels insurmountable so much of the time. Yet, isn't Jesus saying here, the bigger gap isn't between what we are now and what we will one day be. It's between what we were pre-Christ, pre-conversion, and what we are now. That is the bigger gap, according to Jesus in these verses. Our new life with Christ has already, in part, begun. We so often think of the resurrection as an afterthought. One commentator puts it. It gets tacked on to the end of our gospel presentations for apologetic purposes. But really, we just want to stay focused on the cross. And of course, we can never leave behind the cross where Christ achieved uh, achieved our salvation, where he paid for our sin for us. But Jesus doesn't hang on that cross any longer. I've just written an essay on Paul's theology of the resurrection. And you won't find many references in Paul to Christ's death without also having a reference to his resurrection. That great poem of Philippians 2, verses 6 to 11, which I'm sure you know, it doesn't end at verse 8. It ends at verse 11. The turning point at the start of Colossians 3 isn't since you have died with Christ. It's since you have been raised with Christ. If we only lie prostrate on the ground at the foot of the cross, looking down, don't we miss something? Don't we fail to see that he's now the risen, reigning, conquering king, sitting on his throne in heaven? That's not just a picture of the future. That's where he is now. Ephesians 2 tells us. We only look down at the foot of the cross, 
Don't we fail to see his extraordinary power at work in us, in the church, in the world, through the spirit he sent after he was raised to live in us? And don't we fail to see that we have a radical new identity? Yes, we still sin, but we are not fundamentally sinners anymore. We are saints. We are God's holy people. We are his children. For we have already been raised with him. Paul writes in Ephesians, and we have his spirit living within us. Jesus calls Martha to realise that new life, in a very real sense, has already begun. Because of that, there is the most extraordinary hope, power and joy, even in the face of death. And so I wonder, how do you need to know that Christ is raised today? Maybe this feels a world away from your reality this evening or the past few weeks. How do you need to know that your new life in Christ has already spiritually begun? Maybe there's a particular area of life that you're struggling in at the moment. Maybe like Martha and Mary, you're grieving. Maybe you're struggling with ill health, physical or mental. Maybe there's a deep issue within your family or with a close friend that you're struggling to cope with. A battle at work that won't blow over. A loved one who after all these years of praying is yet to turn to Christ. An ongoing sin you're battling with. Or simply just the struggles of living uh, life in a pandemic. Maybe like Martha, you need to be reminded today that Jesus is the resurrection and the life. He has already won the battle against sin, the devil and death. And that he has power in, over and through our lives, the church, his world. Spend a few moments now just praying quietly, maybe in confessing our sin, and then I'll lead us in a minute or two in a prayer of confession and assurance. Father, we are sorry that we so often forget knowing Christ is at the centre of our faith. We think our faith is about ourselves. All other things, no doubt good, but not things that should replace Jesus. We're sorry that we often come to you for what you give us, rather than for who you are. And we're embarrassed to speak of our love for you, Please forgive us. And we're sorry that we're slow to remember that Christ is risen. He reigns. We're sorry that we prefer to stay sometimes at the foot of the cross, enjoying Christ as our saviour, 
instead of looking up and putting our faith in him as our Lord. Please forgive us. And Father, thank you for Christ. Thank you that because he died and was raised, and because we are united to him, we can be confident that our every sin has been dealt with. That we have already been raised with him spiritually, and will one day be raised with him physically. Help us to hold on to you and to know extraordinary power and hope we have because of what Jesus has done for us and because of his spirit living in us. Amen.